In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-15. through 15. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we always, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. And that person whom He's speaking of, that is Jesus Christ our Lord. The title here today is Birthed, Not Brainstormed. Birthed, not brainstormed. Approximately 60 million people die worldwide per year. And the truth that each of those individuals will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell is a sobering and grave reality. Even more sobering is this fact that my life, your life, the life of your children, the life of your family and friends will come to an eventual earthly end and an eternal existence will begin thereafter either in the presence of Jesus or in the lake of fire. We have to understand that the church of Jesus Christ, we operate in the realm of eternal matters. And the reality of eternity should ever be on the minds of God's people and influence everything that we do. The weightiness and expectancy of eternity should produce in me and produce in you a certain diligence and watchful lifestyle. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul began with the fact that our bodies, he describes as tents. Tents are never intended to be a permanent place that you dwell and live in. They are temporary In the same way that Abraham was a sojourner of the Old Testament and he lived in tents and even the Old Testament tabernacle was in a tent and it was not permanent, yet permanent. So are our lives. This this little life that composes of my flesh who is Stephen Morgan, it is temporary, it is fleeting. My body is only yet a tent. And at the end of my life, the, the, the tent pegs will be pulled up And I will be devoured in death, but I will raise up, Paul said, to a habitation created by God's hand Himself. That we will pass from corruption to incorruption. And Paul says in this Scripture, he says, I groan, we groan, the people of God groan for a heavenly habitation. I look forward to the day that I will not have to war against the frailty and the temptations of my flesh. I look forward to the day that I will overcome the weaknesses of my mind and the weaknesses of the tendencies of who I am. I look forward to the day 
that I once and for all will be glorified in totality. And just as Jesus is, I will be like Him. I look forward to that day. But even right now, we are in a spiritual fight. We're in a spiritual warfare. And Paul says, we are a tent. Our bodies are as a tent. And we're groaning for something more. We're groaning for something more. And furthermore, he goes on to talk about, and he makes the reality clear of the temporal aspect of life and then the reality of judgment thereafter. He, is, he speaks of the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this Scripture applies only to the Christian. Only to the Christian. The judgment seat of Christ is not the same thing as the great, great white throne of judgment. The great white throne of judgment is where God, at the end of all of this, will exact His justice and judgment upon all wrongdoers and will cast them into the lake of fire. But for the child of God, we will stand in the, before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is, not con, this is not a condemnation. This is not a judgment where we be cast into the lake. This is a time where we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the quality of our work, the quality of our life will be examined in the presence of Jesus Christ. Sin will not be dealt with here. Judgment for sin will not be dealt with because sin was judged at the cross of Jesus Christ. And when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I won't be judged for my sins. I will stand before God and have to give an account for the things I did, whether if I lived in such a way that I produced fruit concerning the kingdom of heaven. He will look at the quality of your life, the quality of your fruit, and He will distribute rewards based upon that life lived. That is a reality that all of us are facing in our future. And in this aspect, in this reality, that our lives are fading, this tent is passing away, and the reality that there is eternity and there is a judgment, there we will have to give an account for the life that we lived, it must produce a particular fervency and seriousness about the lives we are living right now. When I look at the earthly ministry of Jesus, I see that it was fervent, it was earnest, it was violent even when it comes to spiritual things. Was Jesus a joyous person? Of course. Jesus was a joyous person. Did Jesus enjoy time with friends and family? Did He laugh and and have times of joy with His family and friends? Absolutely, just like you and I did. In fact, I think Jesus was the epitome of pleasantness, of winsomeness, of joy. But Jesus' friendliness did not extinguish His fierceness against the forces of hell. His friendliness did not extinguish His fervency for the kingdom of God. He was fervent. He was earnest in everything He did. I see, as I look at the life of Jesus, I see such a singleness of mind, a preoccupation with the kingdom of God, ever moving forward, never looking to the left, never looking to the right. Jesus was consumed with the purpose for which He had come. If you recall in John chapter 4 when He was ministering to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and after He was done ministering to her, she went away and the disciples showed up. They had brought food because they were all tired and wearied from their journey. And they said, here Jesus, here's your food. And He said, I don't need food. And here's how he responded. He said, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. Jesus was consumed with the work that the Father had given Him and for the purpose for which He had come. Even while Jesus was 12 years of age, we see that His zeal was already evident. Every year during the Passover feast, Jesus and His family, Mary and Joseph, they would go to Jerusalem They lived in Nazareth. They would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year for the Passover feast and celebrate it there. This particular year, they had left Jerusalem at the end of the feast. After a day's journey, they realized that 12-year-old Jesus was not in the company of people with whom they were traveling. They went back to Jerusalem, and after three days of searching for Jesus, they finally found Him at the temple. 
at the holy temple there in Jerusalem. And how did 12-year-old Jesus respond to the worrisome request of His parents asking, why have you done this to us? Here's how Jesus responded. Why did you seek Me? Did you not know that I must be about My Father's business? They found Him, first of all, sitting in the middle of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And when they asked Him, why have you done this? He said, why did you seek Me? Did you not know that I must be about My Father's business? Even at the tender age of 12 years old, even before Jesus came out in His earthly ministry at the age of 30, Jesus was already ardently and fully engaged in the work He had been given by the Father. He was fervent, He was earnest, and He was about the Father's business. He knew exactly where He was going and the purpose for which He had come and that He was going to accomplish that assignment given to Him for the Father for the benefit of all of humanity. When you look around us in the world we live in today, the need is immense and great. The effect of sin is great on this world we live in today. And as a matter of fact, we see its results in this pandemic. That as a result of sin, sickness and death has entered into this world. And we see the results all around us. You can see the countless needs in our community and in this world. For starters, just look at every household on your street and think about all the needs that are represented just on those ho- in those houses on your street. The, the, the physical, the mental, the financial, and most importantly, the spiritual needs of people around us are mountainous and they are at times overwhelming when you consider the great need around us and the most important need, the spiritual needs in people's lives and maybe even in your very household in which you live. You see frayed marriages. You see abused children and lonely teenagers. We see tattered lives from the effects of alcoholism and drug addiction. We live in the midst of a sex-crazed and gender-confused society. They're as confused as ever as to who they are and what what sex they are and what their sexual preference is. Objective moral truth has been exchanged with subjective individualism. And the pursuit of people's happiness is the virtue of our age. You pursue what makes you happy as long as you don't hurt anybody else. And there's absolute depravity, evil, and wickedness in our society. And we see its effects all around us. But oh that God would help us to see to help us to see that that the need is around us. That God would help us to live life in light of the reality of eternity. That God will help us to understand that this body, this tent, it is fading away. And I have but just a little time to be about my Father's business. I have but just a little time to to make an impact for the kingdom of heaven. And in the same ministry that Jesus had, that is, one of fervency, one of singleness of mind, a preoccupation with the kingdom of God, that is, that is the fervency and the earnestness that I desire for my very life. That I would see the needs around me. That I would see that God's name is blasphemed and not glorified. And I would desire to proclaim His Word and endeavor to provide Jesus to those who are hurting and most of all who need salvation in His name. Let me just tell you, more than ever, more than ever, I have a deepened desire. And let me just speak to Grace River Chapel, the members of Grace River Chapel. I have a deepened desire for my life individually and for the church body that makes up Grace River Chapel that we would have true impact for God in our community and in our world. That we as a collective body and individuals, we would live in such a way, we would live in such a way that we are able to advance the kingdom of God. My greatest fear for this church and for myself is complacency. My greatest fear is to be content where we are and where I am. 
I'd rather die. I'd rather die before I see us content with being tucked away on a street, some street corner somewhere in the city, circling the wagons and patting ourselves on the back with self-adulation while people go to hell. I'd rather die before we came to that place. I would rather us be consumed with the business and the work of God Almighty, living our lives in light of eternity and the soon-to-come judgment. We must understand and never forget that Jesus installed the church as the primary vehicle to manifest His glory and proclaim His Word. He has installed you as a body, as a member of the body of Christ. He has installed the collective global church of Jesus Christ as the vehicle by which He would proclaim His glory and proclaim His Word. Before Jesus ascended, He gave the church a divine mandate, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. God has chosen to accomplish His will. This is mind-blowing. This is hard to comprehend, but He has chosen you. He has chosen me. He has chosen mere human beings regenerated and made new by the Spirit of God. He has chosen the vehicle of the church to accomplish His will on earth through us. And what a privilege... What a privilege that we are able to join God. That we are able to be on the front lines of advancing God's kingdom and bring true impact to the world. Oh, that God would put a fire within us. A desire within us. That He would break up our fallow ground. That He would wake us up from any laziness and sluggishness of spirit. That He would remove the complacency that may have set into our lives and He would wake us up to the need around us. He would wake us up to the temporary time that we have. He would wake us up to the reality of judgment and we're going to have to give an answer for the quality of our lives lived. Oh, that God would open our eyes and give us a fervency. Give us a preoccupation with the things of heaven. But this does not happen by default. This does not happen automatically. To walk in fervency, to walk in step with the will of God does not happen automatically. Does not happen automatically. Recently, while I was in prayer for the church, for Grace River Chapel, some weeks ago, and this is rooted in the... What I'm about to tell you is rooted in the title of today's message. As I was praying a few weeks ago, the Lord just stirred up a prayer in my heart. And I just asked the Lord, Lord, let ministry, let your heart be birthed from this church and not just brainstormed. Let your heart, let ministry be birthed from this church and not just brainstormed. And what I mean by that is let there be a real burden of God. Let the Spirit of God take root in our lives. Take root and arrest our hearts to where we have this zeal to advance the kingdom of God. Listen, we have many good ideas. We can have many good ideas and thoughts on how the church can make an impact. And I'm not against with us sitting around a table and discussing ideas and ways we can minister to the community and minister to the people. But it's not until we are constrained by the heart of God, by the love of Jesus Christ, will we truly be able to advance the kingdom of God by His leadership and in His power. Ministry must be birthed in our spirits and not merely brainstormed in our heads. If we're going to make impact in our families' lives, Start with your household. Start with your neighborhood. Start with your family, your your workplace. Start with your community. If we're going to make impact in the lives of those around us for the glory of Jesus Christ, it's not us merely coming up with good ideas on how to do that. It is us being captivated, arrested by the Spirit of God and allowing His will to be birthed out of our lives and manifested through it. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you. I've given birth 
to you through the Gospel. Paul labored. He sacrificed for the benefit of the Corinthian church. The the Bible tells us that he had prayed, he had preached, he had taught, he had worked with them night and day for several years with the Corinthian church. And it was through this life of sacrifice and labor of, of prayer and continued preaching and teaching and showing them who Christ was and how to live the Christ. It was through this labor of love that converts were produced through the ministry of Paul. Listen, the hollow and indifferent rituals of religion do not produce converts. It is with much intention and passion and labor and prayer and agony that converts our birth. It is with a desire to pursue the will of God with intention, with fervency, with earnestness that God will cause fruit to come forth from our lives. It is from that place that we will see people's lives impacted. People's lives are not impacted by accident. It is with intention that we pursue the Lord and allow Him to minister through us. Allow His Spirit to control us, to move us, to direct us, to correct us. And allow Him to move through us for His glory and for the benefit of those around us. If God will accomplish anything in our lives, if He'll accomplish anything in this church, it will not come through comfort or ease. The flesh loves comfort. The flesh loves ease. The flesh loves a shortcut. The flesh loves the easy route. But there is no shortcut for the, for the will of God, the mind of God, the heart of God to be birthed out of our lives and to be manifested through it. It will be accomplished by a holy fervor in a fixation with eternity. It will be accomplished with a holy fervor for the things of God and a fixation with the reality of eternity. And so you may ask at this point, how is God's desire? How is ministry birthed out of my life? How does He get glory? How does He work through my life? Before there is any work that we put our hands to, God's will for us must first be conceived. If you allow me to use this pregnancy language and continue the theme, it must be first be conceived, and that conception is accomplished by prayer. That is the answer. That is the answer. The mind of God, it is not conceived in a brainstorming session. It is conceived in His presence. The mind and heart of God is conceived in your spirit when you abide in His presence. It is prayer which will cause God's desire for us to be conceived, birthed, and nurtured into maturity. Now listen, is it beneficial? Is it necessary that we, that church leaders gather together and they discuss and they come up with creative ideas and they discuss how can we uh, produce a program that would allow us to most effectively minister to our people and we discuss ideas and different methods. Yes, that's very beneficial on biblical grounds and you're grounded on the Bible. But listen, ultimately, the catalyst for all divine activity must be divine inspiration. The catalyst for all divine activity must be divine inspiration and not just something that comes from the flesh or from our good ideas. Let it come through divine inspiration, that divine activity of our lives, that it comes from that place. As a Christian, your first and highest calling is the ministry of prayer. You may not be a teacher, a Bible teacher. You may not be a preacher. You may not be a missionary. You may not be called to ministry in the official sense. But every single Christian, your highest and greatest calling and first calling, you are called to the ministry of prayer. You are called to minister before the Lord in His presence by offering, not as the high priest of the Old Testament offering bulls and goats, but by offering yourself as a living sacrifice in prayer, giving yourself up to the Lord and allowing Him to speak to you Manifest His presence and His glory to you, His will to you, 
and use your life in this world. You can do things and go places through the portal of prayer that could never be accomplished by any amount of money or human ingenuity. Listen, you can go places and do things through the portal of prayer that no amount of money or human ingenuity could ever accomplish in a lifetime. You may not be able to go to India and minister to people, but you can pray. You may not have all the answers for the the needs around us, but you can pray. You can intercede for the needs around you. You can intercede for your family because God listens and He is moved by the effectual prayer, fervent prayer of a righteous individual. Though Jesus was fully God, He made Himself completely dependent upon the Father. And the primary means by which He gained strength and help and encouragement from the Father was prayer. God being, Jesus being fully God made Himself subject and made Himself dependent upon the Father. And the primary means and the way by which He received strength and maintained a dependence upon the Father was through prayer. Jesus, more than anything that Jesus did, He prayed. More than preaching, more than miracles, more than anything, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. He was consumed with the Father. Remember, don't you know that I must be about my Father's business? My work is to do, or my my food is to do the will of the Father and to finish His work. That is what Jesus was consumed by. And the means by which he, that was produced in His life, and the means by which he, was, he maintained a dependence upon the Father was through prayer. More than anything, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. As a matter of fact, the last activity that Jesus did before He was arrested by the chief priests, the guards of the chief priests, He was praying in the garden. He was praying for strength and encouragement for the Father to face the purpose for which He had come. It was through prayer that He was able to accomplish what He accomplished for you and for I. That is death upon a cross. The agony of the cross. It was by prayer. And when the last things He said to the Father, He said, Not My will, yet Yours be done, O Father. Not My will, but Yours be done. And that is, that is the primary result of prayer. That we come before the presence of God and we say, God, not my will, but yours be done. I have been purchased with a price. That is the price of your own blood. I am not my own. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You call the shots in my life. You are my Master. Not my will, but yours be done. I want to be engaged in your business. I want to be engaged in the business of eternity. Because the church of Jesus Christ operates in the realm of eternal matters. But listen, too often, too often we approach prayer merely as a means for God to reshape our circumstances when the primary reason to come to God in prayer is for Him to reshape our hearts. We, we should go to God in prayer to bring our needs and our supplications and our petitions and make our requests known to the Lord. Yes, do that. But first and foremost, come to the Lord in prayer, exposing yourself, opening yourself open to Him and allowing Him to change you. That is the primary purpose of prayer. Never forget, your greatest need and God's greatest desire is to conform you to His Son. To conform you to Jesus Christ. And He does that through prayer. So that you, just like Jesus Christ, being conformed to Him, you may say, not my will, but your will be done. Accomplish in me. Accomplish in me what you desire to accomplish. The church was birthed on the day of Pentecost. That is the moment in time in which we can historically say the church of Jesus Christ was birthed on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was just simply a Jewish festival that occurred 10 days after the Passover. Or 50 days after the Passover. Because the word Pentecost means 50. 50 days after the day of Pentecost. 
And that birth occurred, the birth of the church occurred when 120 people, by the direction and command and instruction of their Lord, just before He ascended on high, He told them, go to an upper room, go to Jerusalem and pray. On the day of Pentecost, the church was birthed by prayer. The church, listen closely, the church was not birthed as the result of a brainstorming session or as a roundtable discussion. The church was not birthed even due to preaching. Listen, it was not the result of good preaching. It was the result of them for ten days as they continued in one purpose, in one accord, in one mind to pray and make supplication to the Lord. It was through their fervor and their persistent prayer life that the day of Pentecost, on this day of Pentecost, that the Spirit of God fell and God baptized them with the power of His Spirit. And it was from that day forward, and on that day 3,000 people were saved, but from that day forward, the church of Jesus Christ spread like wildfire. And what was the catalyst? It was 120 people spending 10 straight days in the presence of God. The church was birthed through prayer. And it's the same thing that's going to occur with us. His will, His desire, the ministry that He has for us, for you individually and for this church, it's going to be birthed because it was conceived in prayer. It's going to be birthed through our lives. It must be conceived in prayer. If you recall, if you recall Jesus... He cleansed the temple. Not once, but twice. Jesus cleansed the temple two times. In John chapter 2, we see the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple. And in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record a separate instance at the end of Jesus' ministry where He cleansed the temple. And in John chapter 2, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers, listen closely, they were doing business, the Bible says. The money changers and those who sold oxen, sheep and doves, they were doing business in the temple court, the first temple court in Jerusalem. When He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of merchandise. And in the other Gospels, He says, My house shall be a house of prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer. And the disciples, when they watched this occur in Jesus, it says, then His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Speaking of Jesus, zeal, fervency, earnestness for your house has eaten me up. Let me first just ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Which business are you preoccupied What are you most preoccupied with? Earthly business or heavenly business? These men who were taking advantage of the festival and the surroundings of all the people coming, needing to exchange money and buy uh, animals for sacrifices, they were taking advantage of the most holiest point of the year at the most holiest site, and they were engaged in doing business, it says for their own personal monetary gain. They were selling animals, conducting business with no thought for God and no thought for eternal matters. So I ask you the question, what are you most consumed with? Doing God's business or your business? I'm not talking about your job. I'm not talking about your vocation. I'm not talking about the responsibilities of life. I'm saying, what preoccupies your heart? What preoccupies your mind and your thoughts? What do you long for the most? Do you long to do the work of the Father? Or are you preoccupied with earthly things that will burn up in the end? Remember, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and the quality of our work will be dealt with. And rewards will be given on the basis of that. Jesus was not zealous. He was not zealous for the physical temple, the building, the structure itself. 
Because the disciples, they quote Psalm 69, they say, and they remembered, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus was not zealous for the physical stones that made up the temple. That's not what Jesus was zealous for. He was zealous for His Father's glory. Jesus was zealous for His Father's glory. His righteous indignation... His righteous indignation was stirred up by the irreverent attitude of the people who viewed the temple and the Passover feast, which was the holiest place during the most solemn time of year. They viewed it as a means of monetary gain. They were effectively blaspheming God. They were not glorifying God and they were not approaching the most holiest site in the most solemn period of time, that is the Passover feast, and they've merely used it as a means of monetary gain and to make a profit off the temple and off the people who were coming there for the feast. What a tragedy. But Jesus, in His righteous indignation, He was zealous for the glorification of His Father. He was zealous for His name. He would not allow it to be blasphemed. And... He pushed them out with great fierceness and fervency. And I want you to understand here today, we understand that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. God does not dwell in buildings made with men's hands. He doesn't dwell in, in, in a, a, a dwelling, in a house or a temple. God dwells in you. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You are God's temple. You're His church. God does not dwell in a a dwelling. He doesn't dwell in in something made with men's hands. He dwells in people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansed by His Spirit. You are a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ for a divine purpose. My Father's house shall be called a house of prayer. It shall be called a house that glorifies God. You are God's house. You are God's temple. And it is His desire that He would be glorified in your life. And that anything in your life which is not pleasing to the Lord, that it would be pushed out with the violence of the Spirit of God so that anything that is contrary to the will of God, it would be destroyed in your life. That we make ourselves subject to His Spirit. I close here very shortly. I close here very shortly. Going back to our text, 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. So understand, the whole thought that Paul is trying to get across here, he's saying we live in a temporal tent. Our bodies, we're passing away. We have something to look forward to. A habitation made by God that's prepared for us, where we will exchange corruption for incorruption. But in light of our temporal circumstance, and then in light of we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul said previously, we seek to please Him in all things, knowing the terror of the Lord. And then he says, the love of Jesus Christ compels me. It controls me. It, 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 it motivates me. That word compel. It refers to a pressure that causes action. It is such a pressure of the love of God within me because I've been in His presence. He has given me His heart. He has given me His will. He has spoken to me. I have latched on to His promises. I am consumed with His work. I have my eyes on eternity. And this love of Jesus Christ is so compels and constrains me. There's such this pressure within me that it can't help but cause action to manifest into my life. That is the birthing of God's will and desire in mind and heart that it would be done through my life. When we have been so arrested by the heart of God, the manifestation of His heart in our lives will be unavoidable. It's like pressure rising in a vessel. 
and enough pressure builds up in that vessel that is closed off, it will eventually burst. It's the same with you and I. Let the love of Jesus Christ compel you, constrain you, motivate you. Let God's heart, let His will, let His Word so swell within your life that it will come bursting forth and be birthed so that you cannot but help advance the kingdom of God. That's His will for our lives. Let me close here very shortly. If you recall in Matthew 9, 35, Jesus was going about itinerating, preaching the gospel to all the cities and villages, preaching the gospel, healing every sickness, every disease. And it tells us in Matthew 9, 36, when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And here's what Jesus told His disciples. He said, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Jesus, Jesus fully understanding the spiritual state of those around Him, He saw them. He saw them struggling in their own flesh and by their own works, having no hope outside of the Messiah. He saw them as sheep having no shepherd, and He had compassion for them. And He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest, it's everywhere. It's ripe to be harvested. But there are so few laborers. There are so few people to be engaged in the business of the Father. There are so few people to take the heart of God and go to the highways and byways and the hedges and compel them to come to the Father's house. And He says, so therefore, pray. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. And listen to this. Listen closely. Don't just pray that God would compel somebody else. The direct intention in this is pray so that you would become a laborer for Jesus Christ. You pray. And when you pray, He will birth something in your life so that you will step out and be a laborer for the Lord of the harvest. May we, as Jesus, see the needs around us, be driven by prayer and action, fulfilling our role as laborers for the Lord of the harvest. If we pray, He will send us. Not somebody else, but if you will pray, He will use you. He will cause you to be a laborer, to bring in a harvest for Him. I close with this. On Easter morning, I was reminded of the circumstances surrounding the first Passover meal that the children of Israel, that they ate while still yet in Egypt. And I actually posted something to this effect on Facebook Easter morning. Just reflecting on that first Passover and then just relating as to some parallels that we find ourselves in in this Easter that we just celebrated. This Passover that we just celebrated. If you recall, Exodus 12 says, 11 says, And thus you shall eat it. Here's how you eat the Passover meal. With a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. While in the safety of their homes, whose lentils were covered, whose lentils and doorposts were covered with the blood of the Passover lamb that had been slaughtered, and they would be preserved from the angel of death that would come through the land and take the life of the firstborn in all of the land. They ate the Passover meal under those circumstances. And they did not, they did not eat the Passover meal with their pajamas on. They ate the Passover meal with sandals and belt on and staff in their hand, with their mules and camels packed, because the Lord knew that this last and final plague was going to break the will of Pharaoh and that Pharaoh would tell them, leave immediately. And he was saying, eat this Passover in haste and eat it prepared for the journey I'm going to send you on. Be ready. Eat it with your sandals on, with your belt around your waist, with your staff in your hand, ready to walk out the door. The moment that Pharaoh says go, then you are ready to go. And I was just thinking Easter morning, and this is not the direct um, interpretation of the Scripture. I'm just making a parallel and applying the principle of this. 
that in the midst of this coronavirus outbreak, all of us, the global church really, the global church of Jesus Christ, we've been unable to meet in close proximity in the church and we've had to maintain our distance in the safety of our homes. In the safety of our homes. But I wanted to give this message to all of you. Please, please be ready, church, with your sandals on, with your belt on, with staff in your hand, that we cannot allow complacency and laziness, spiritually that is, to set into our homes in this time so that when we are called back to our places of worship and places of employment, that we're called back to our normal lives, we will be ready. We will be ready to be about the Father's business. Please, take this time. We've already, we've already been in this moment for the last month or so. It's not like it just happened. But use this time. Utilize this time. Redeem this time to grow spiritually in the Lord. To be full of His presence, of His Spirit. Get before the Lord and allow Him to put His heart, His mind, His will into your life. Don't become complacent. And if you are complacent, if you are asleep, oh, pray to the Lord to wake you up. He will. He will birth something in you. But it's only conceived when you go to Him in His presence by prayer. He will equip us. He will make us ready and prepared. Because when we come back to this place, when we come back to this church, it can't be business as usual. We have to put our hands at the plow and continue on as a church family corporately and individually. That is my desire for this church as your pastor. That's my desire for my life individually. That's my desire for my household, for my wife, for my children. So I ask you, prepare yourself for the journey that God is going to take us on. And let us, let us be fervent. Let us be earnest for the things that are heavenly. Let us store up treasures in heaven because of the things of this world will offer no comfort and they will burn in the end. But let us store up treasures in heaven. My, my call to you here today is pray. My call to you is pray. Pray with all your heart. Pray with all your spirit, with all your mind. Pray fervent, faith-filled prayers. If you have no fervency, if you have no spark in your heart, God can give that to you. God can give that to you. But you've got to crucify your flesh. Turn away from the things that have your affections and look to the Father and say, God, wake me up. Stir me up. Remove the complacency. Remove a preoccupation with things that are temporal and earthly. And help me to set my sights on heaven which is soon approaching. God, help me. So I encourage you. Pray, church. Get before the Lord. Seek Him in His presence. Allow Him to put something in you that will rise up and expand to the point that you can't help but just go forward motivated by the love of God, by His will, by His Word. Listen, eternal matters are weighty. Eternal matters are weighty. Your life, my life, souls all around us are in the balance. And every single day, every single day, someone is dying. Someone is entering into eternity and they're either going to heaven or going to hell. And may God continuously remind us of this truth, of this reality, and put a fire, a fervor within our lives so that we will advance the kingdom of God, not for our glory, not for our namesake, but for the sake of the name of the Lord. May He birth that in us as it's conceived in prayer. And may we be found faithful to do those things that He puts into our hands. Listen, whatever the Lord tells us to do, whatever He puts into our hands, it's so important that we are diligent and that we are faithful. Do not scoff at small beginnings. Do not scoff at the little things He may put into your hands and entrust to you. Let us be found faithful. Let us put our hands to the plow. Do what He tells us to do. And He will advance His kingdom through our lives. And He will increase blessing in our lives as well. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray God right now for those who are in their living rooms, they may be in their cars, wherever they're at, God, 
I pray, Lord, that You would produce a desire in the hearts of Your people to run to Your presence. Not to run to anything else except Your presence first and foremost. Make it a realization that every person that they are called, their highest calling and their first calling, is the ministry of prayer. And if we can do nothing else, we can pray. Every single one of us can pray. And what we can do through prayer, it is so much more than the ingenuity and the money of man and the strength of man. What we can do, what you can do through our prayer, God, is more than we can fathom or think, God. I pray, God, You would instill in us a desire, a hunger, a thirst for You, God, for Your presence. Give us a desire for Your will to be accomplished in our lives, God. Help us to be consumed to be consumed with Your work, with Your will, with Your business, Lord. Help us not to advance our own kingdom, but to advance Your kingdom, God. Give us eyes of faith. Help us not to walk by sight, but walk by faith. I pray, God, You would remove fear and insecurity that would keep us from stepping forward in faith. That if we would just keep our eyes on You and be so consumed with Your love within us, we will be so bold to step out and do things that we could not do in our own power and our own cleverness and our own strength, God. That You would allow us to walk in Your power led by Your Spirit so that You could receive all praise, glory, and honor through our lives, through our family, and through this church. God, bless Your people, Your precious people. I pray as the Good Shepherd, You would lead and direct us. God, I don't have it figured out. I don't always know what to do, Lord. I'm so weak and cowardly in my own flesh and my own strength, God. And I cannot do it in my own power, God. I cannot do it. I cannot pastor a people. I cannot live for You in my own strength. But God, You can help. You can give wisdom. You can lead and direct and guide, God. You can use small things to make Your glory great, God. I'm a small thing. But God, You used a stone to take down a giant because of a man who believed that You could. Make us people who are consumed with Your will, who step out in faith and do what You tell us to do, God, so that Your name is known, that people come to a saving knowledge in You, that people's needs are met, God, I just pray that You would give us a special grace in this time, God. Help us, Lord, to be ready for this journey. Help us, Lord, to have our eyes set on the future, Lord. Wake us up. Stir us up, God, if that needs to occur in our lives. And let us be ready for the journey ahead and the task that You put into our hands. Help us by Your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.